broadcasting either side of the breach. Listeners, I am your favourite announcer, bringing you another Tales of Malifaux. We have been receiving some concerning correspondence about the listening conditions that some of you are using to partake in this edutainment programme. This simply won't do. I don't want to be the one to tell you how to live your life. That is the governor's job. But for maximum enjoyment, the proper safety conditions have to be observed. When it comes to plugging your etherbox into a power source, just don't. I repeat, just don't do it. We can't explain why, just leave it be and the program will take care of itself. You don't have to go plugging it into a generator, rock or pig, you'll just ruin the magic. Next, let's discuss seating. Premium enjoyment can be attained by gathering the whole family, arranging little Timmy and little Bert on the floor close to the radio. Responsible adults are advised to find their favoured armchairs, lean as far back as is comfy, and place both feet gently on the ground. Isn't that better? Thought so. Last of all, let's touch on the reason for the amount of mail we've had. The whole head-exploding thing? Come on, guys. I know things can get exciting with this half hour, but if you could just rein it in until after the train chimes at the end, that's that would be grand. Much appreciated. I'd give you a little time to follow those instructions, but they have already passed and the story is about to start. Keep that grey matter inside your cranium now. This is Dark Treasures. Dark Treasures. Hamlin knelt to wipe his blade clean on his victim's shirt. The metal rang as he pressed the button on the handle of the knife to quickly retract the blade. The sharp sound reverberated throughout the vast channel of the sewer tunnel. In the distance, he could hear a colony of rats react to the echo, scattering into the river of filth that ran down the center of the tunnel. No one else would have even noticed it, no doubt, much less understood that the shift of the small, splashing echoes were rats jumping into the thick water rather than the constant dripping and splashing of water from every adjoining tunnel, but he certainly did. No one knew rats, nor the sewers, quite like Hamlin. He could even envision the size of the colony, and had an instinctive notion of the several twists the tunnels made to bring the sound of their scattering to him. At his side, his faithful canine companion sniffed at the corpse. Aye, let's see what we've got, Nix. Reaching into the dead man's coat, he pulled out the wallet. Hamlin found a fistful of guild scrip and several greenbacks, all but worthless in Malifaux. He could trade them in, but the effort was more trouble than they were worth. Toilet paper still cost the last time he checked, so he was sure they would come in handy one way or another. He shrugged, stuffing them in a pocket on the inside of his coat. Those earthside bills painted a picture that this stranger was a new arrival upon Malifaux's soil, no doubt here to make his mark like so many other lost souls. Now instead of making his mark, he was one, lost and very soon forgotten. One more victim for Malifaux's void. Another tragic tale of failed ambition and shattered hope Hamlin loved to hear told in the bars. The few guild notes that did have value weren't as much as he'd hoped for, but were more than enough to buy him some Malifaux gin and the warm company of a girl at the Key and Gong. 
Standing, he stuffed the money into his pocket and raised his gaslight lamp. He glanced back down the tunnel to ensure his isolation, although he knew no one could approach him without his sharp ears noticing. Certainly Nix would have alerted him. Welcome to Malifaux, friend, he said loudly to the corpse at his feet. With a swift kick, Hamlin sent the body of the man he'd robbed and murdered tumbling into the water. Enjoy your stay. The slowly moving sludge enveloped the body, dragging it below the fetid depths and carrying it away. His voice dropped and resonated with sinister purpose. Be sure to tell them Hamlin sent you. He guffawed and snorted. Clearing his throat, he spat a thick plug of mucus into the cesspool. Come along now, he said, beckoning for Nix to heal. Let's head back. Overly slender and of modest stature, Hamlin was not an imposing figure. Not only was he physically on the frail side, but his knees and elbows had a particularly knobby edge that matched his hooked nose and jutting chin. People had a natural tendency to turn away from the sight of him, afraid they might embarrass him by staring at his strange-looking features. His apparent frailty served him well, allowing him to slink through the alleyways of Malifaux and prey on the unaware. As one who lived in the shadows and subsisted on the waste of society, Hamlin felt a certain natural kinship with the vermin of the sewer. It was an environment he felt welcome in, preferring the company of the city's pests to its people, who he never understood. His only companion was the bull terrier that trotted at his side. The dog remained at the edge of the small circle of illumination provided by Hamlin's lamp, ever alert. If Malifaux was an immense and indecipherable labyrinth of streets and alleyways, its sewer was far beyond the genius of the ancient builder's earthside. Hamlin's gaslight illuminated his path, but was unable to reach the top of the passage high overhead. Cyclopean in scale, the sewer had been designed and built to withstand storm drainage of unimaginable intensity. During the tenure of man in Malifaux, no rainstorm had even come close to challenging this sewer, and even when the nearby marshland swelled with water, the streets of Malifaux remained dry and clear. This incredible network had evolved into an elaborate ecosystem all its own, and most would-be adventurers avoided it nearly as desperately as they avoided the wilderness beyond what civilization humanity had reclaimed in its short return to Malifaux. Subterranean creatures had become especially adapted to this dark environment. The most ubiquitous example was the Malifaux Grey Rat, which, while appearing very similar to its Earthside counterpart, was far more suited to braving vast depths of water and could crawl even upside down along the tops of the slippery sewer channels. The dissimilarities between rat species did not end there, however. As with most creatures, Malifaux bred a particularly vicious animal. Most humans had a natural inclination to avoid any rat, and many feared them altogether, though erroneously in most cases. Rats were scavengers and survivors, fleeing from danger whenever possible. Although they occupied the places man would avoid, they fulfilled the necessary role of consuming what man discarded. The Malifaux Grey Rat, however, did not rely upon scavenging alone to sustain itself. They were overtly aggressive and wickedly smart. They could hunt, and not only in groups, but sometimes even in isolation. Hamlin often likened them more to wolverines than normal rats, and even pondered why it was said the legendary beastmaster Marcus could not figure out how to bend them to his will. Hamlin snorted again as he considered that. Better, he decided, for the Beastmaster to remain in the dark on that count. People tolerated Hamlin because he alone could compel whole colonies at once. The trick, he thought, is not to dominate them, but to submit to their power.
a word from the guild's sanitation department. We have a problem. A rat problem. Beneath our city is a threat nibbling and gnawing away at the very foundations of Malifaux. This isn't any normal rats. We are talking huge and as big as a cat. Hence why normal everyday people should just shut off and wait for this habit to end. We are not interested in them. We are after rat-catching soldiers. We'll provide the kit and a period of some training before pushing you into the dark depths of the sewers to bag a few of these pests. For every one you bring up, there is a guild script for you. So what do you have to lose? Grab a trap and become a rat catcher today. It's totally safe. Honest. Now, back to our show. Holding his lamp over the water, Hamlin noticed how a subtle vibration disturbed it as small ripples moved the water in minute waves against the bricks lining the channel. Although he had nothing to fear from the predatorial grey rat, other creatures existed entirely within the thick, spoiled water of the sewer, and Hamlin knew well to keep clear of the strange creatures that patrolled its fetid murk. He backed away and pressed against the stone wall of the sewer. The vibration was there, too, and it slowly grew in intensity. Cobblestones and bricks from the street's foundation far overhead fell to the water with great splashes. The quake spooked Nix, who tugged incessantly at his leash. Dog and owner turned to flee as a glowing fissure opened overhead. Only then did he realize that the quake began above ground rather than below. He quickly placed his subterranean location below the northern quarter of the city. Its structures built upon a relatively thin membrane separating the buildings above and the expansive sewers below. Where the riot that brewed above provided great cover for this night's dark transgression, the fools had managed to raise a building, and the sudden violence of its collapse threatened him as well. Ironically, then, the same elements he'd used to conceal his murder had now compromised him. Hamlin quickly unhooked Nix's leash and said, Stay close, boy, but find a way out of here. The dog loped ahead, anxious to find safety, but he remained within Hamlin's lamplight, moving as quickly as his spindly legs allowed. The fissure grew into a jagged, fiery crack, and more cobblestones from the street above collapsed, falling into the sewer below, splashing Hamlin and Nix. Below, far overhead, Hamlin could hear the crackle of burning timbers within the building as fire engulfed the exposed bottom, sending some debris glowing in oranges and yellows down to the foul water. Hamlin and Nix could not traverse the span of the great chamber in time, as that building, full of fire and smoke, crumbled into the sewer channel breaking the stone walls. If he had been safe, the sight of a fully constructed building falling several stories through open air might have been one of the greatest sights of his life. As it was, he feared it might be the last sight of his life. Faster, boy, he urged, knowing it was he who slowed them. Go, dog, he said. Just go, Nix. But it was too late. The structure hit the water. The sudden impact of the full building and the remains of its stone foundation displaced the fetid muck sending volumes of the dark substance up in a great wave that consumed the entire passage, while sludge spilled from its channel and poured through the openings. Hamlin was caught in this sudden surge and washed beneath the surface. All was darkness as the water pulled him under and swept him away. He had lost the gaslight and his companion as well. As he rolled through the thick water, he struck against the side of the channel and turned over and about. Panic consumed him as he struggled to pull himself up for air. There, in the dark, beneath the thick waters of the sewer, he kicked madly, but no longer knew which way was up. 
A very dim glow from the burning building illuminated the way behind him, giving him his only notion of direction. The surge of heat from the burning mass was left far behind as his body was cruelly tossed out of the main channel and down a series of narrow tunnels. The torrent bludgeoned him against walls and one particularly severe blow drove the remaining air from him and he screamed out beneath the water. Bubbles rolled across his face as he clawed and kicked madly, hoping he'd emerge from the watery hell. His lungs ached for air, and just as he was convinced he would drown, his body spilled out into a tall waterfall. Falling more than a dozen yards, he felt the brief air upon his face and inhaled desperately, drawing in both air and the foul water. He refused to choke it out, stifling the gag reflex, knowing he'd desperately need every breath. He landed in a lake of sludge which saved him from further injury, though the water continued to pour upon him and forced him to the bottom of the reservoir. The air within him was once again driven from his body, and his face and chest were dragged painfully across the roughly hewn stones below. He screamed out again beneath the water, and involuntarily drew in the grotesque fluid. He choked and his chest exploded in pain as flashes of light played out before his eyes as he succumbed to drowning. He passed out, reluctantly accepting that death had come to claim him. He was unconscious as his body bobbed to the surface and coughed out thick sewage. The density of the water kept him partially afloat, allowing him to breathe, although cracked ribs and bruised lungs left his breathing shallow and wheezing. He regained consciousness slowly, unaware of how long he might have lain in that pile of filth. Eventually, though, he managed to blindly grope his way out and pull himself onto the stone landing at the side of the pool. Completely drenched and his lamp lost long ago, he was blind and cold. He felt the gaping wounds upon his brow and cheek as well as both palms. He didn't need to check to know that several ribs were cracked or broken. And for all he knew, he might be blind as well. Having lived for some time in the black sewers, he had come prepared, and searching through his coat, he produced a waterproof chemical flare. He struck it on the ground beside him with the last of his strength. At the end of the flare erupted with bright red light. He held it up feebly to survey his surroundings. High above him, a column of water poured down from out of sight, its current slowly returning to its normal volume. Rats, sludge, and garbage all cascaded down into the growing subterranean lake before him. Just as he had crawled out, the rats also scurried out of the muck and into the darkness, equally anxious to end their ordeal. However, they were far less beaten than him, he knew, and not for the first time did he wish he were as resilient. Hamlin also discovered that he was no longer in the sewer, but within an expansive vault beneath the surface fed by the sewer tributary. Although his flare illuminated much of the area about him, it could not penetrate the far depths of the cavern, and the moving of the water against rock echoed strangely, disorienting him and confusing his sense of space and depth. from our sponsors. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we come along. The Guild of Merchantilers brand new catalogue is out now, and it could be with you. 
We have more guns than the Ortigas, from the antique and sophisticated A&T Dracon, for the discerning gentleman right up to up-to-date models. Does it spit lead? Then we'll flog it. But that's not all. Close combat weapons for the person that likes to get personal. Did I mention we do liquor too? Come to the one-stop shop for your everyday needs if you're hungry, cold, sober or vengeful. We most likely have everything that will fix your particular problem. Happiness for you when you don't deserve it. The new Guild of Merchantilers catalogue, out now! And now, back to our show. Lifting the flare, the red light illuminated tall, straight walls that contrasted sharply with the cylindrical vaults of the sewer he was accustomed to. Although he initially thought the chamber was a naturally occurring cave that ancient city planners had connected their elaborate sewage system to, he saw that the rough stone was more purposefully carved from the hard rock, as if torn from top to bottom by immense claws, as long recesses gouged into the otherwise flat surface. His breath still coming in laboured gasps. He used this odyssey of architecture as an excuse to pause before hunting for nicks and a way out. Naturally, if he had survived, his smart dog would surely have done even better. Amlin ran his hand across the jagged face of the stone and found, very much to his surprise, that set into the wall in a regular pattern were a series of tombs. Suddenly very curious, he ignored the pain within his chest and the protesting of his much-bruised arms as he pulled and prized at the cap sealing one of the chambers. Although he at first thought he lacked the strength to open one even in an unwounded state, with an accidental push and tug the stone encasement swung open, groaning against a rock hinge, the door held by almost perfectly balanced and crafted stone. Although the bones within this first tomb were human in size, he could not be certain they were of either human or never-born origin. To the scavenger in him, he saw the opportunity to find treasures to be salvaged. He soon found the relatively easy method of opening each vault, and hungrily examined tomb after tomb. Very few of the graves held any complete corpse, but many also contained additional accoutrements set to rest with the departed. In lifting himself to inspect these items, Hamlin felt the bruises visiting on his body by the rough journey into this chamber, and decided he must come back for the treasures after escaping this watery graveyard, instead of straining himself now and plundering. He wasn't going to escape the way he came in, as the sewer that deposited him here opened far overhead, and he could certainly not climb out even in the best of his health. The water here flowed out of this cavern somewhere, and the rats had certainly seemed eager enough to find the way. If they were able to get out, then he was assured he could too as well. What puzzled him most, though, and caused him the greatest fear, was the strange absence of Nick's. He worried that the dog might have perished, either by drowning or from a pummeling against the walls. He called, Nix! But the effort shook his body, and he fell against one of the outer ribs of the wall next to him. Fighting down the urge to cough, his bloody bile arose in his throat. He whistled shrilly for Nix to come, certain that the dog would hear it echoing through the chamber and pinpoint him. But Nix did not come. Hamlin gathered up his courage and fought against the growing dread. He followed along the wall of the crypt, amazed by the uncountable number of graves stacked within, assuming that they went all the way to the top of this already expansive chamber. His fingers felt along the wall as he slowly made his way, and he discovered the stones were decorated with script between the recessed column of tombs. The words were indecipherable to him, 
written, he supposed, in the language of old Malifaux, but the volume of words crowded between the graves suggested an enormous epic. He began to wonder what manner of men were buried here, if the people of old Malifaux were so different from the men who inhabited the city today. He heard a strange mewling noise from further along the passage, faint and pitiful. He moved quietly and carefully towards the feeble noise. To him it sounded like the pitiful whimpering of the dying. Yet other than him, no living thing should be down here. He hated the thought, but reluctantly knew it might very well be Nick's crying somewhere ahead. He held the flare before him and steadied his nerves as he crept along the edge of the water as quickly as he dared. Eventually the crypt opened up into a large vaulted chamber, similar to the massive room it adjoined, but this room's lower ceiling and angular walls bounced his light very efficiently, illuminating the entire expanse. The walls of the chamber were not crowded with graves like the rest of the crypt, but were decorated with enormous statues set into wide circular alcoves. The center of the chamber was ruined. Soil had swelled beneath the stones and had grown into a large mound. A pile of stones had been rolled away, and what appeared to be a large sarcophagus had spilled open. The bones of its occupant lay scattered on the ground, but as Hamlin approached, he noticed that the skeleton's hand still clutched some treasure possessively in its grip. Leaning in close, Hamlin held his flare over the object. It was a flat, thick piece of lacquered metal inlaid with a myriad of interconnected gears. Hamlin was reminded of the inner workings of a music box or the motion of a pocket watch. It was decorated with what appeared to be a crescent moon and a collection of stars, with one large red gem in the middle of the others. He imagined the cogs moving and the stars spinning in a dance around the moon, although the red star did seem to sit in the middle of the device's face. In addition, one side of the metal plate was hinged, and it appeared that the device might be opened in a manner similar to a book. His inspection of the device was interrupted by the faint simpering sound that had drawn him here. Moving away from the corpse, and to the other side of the tumbled sarcophagus, Hamlin discovered the body of his canine partner. It was unmistakably Nick's. But as he rounded the corner, looking for the source of the whimpering, he found only the dog's devoured carcass, only bones and a bit of sinew remaining. He cried out and leapt to the poor creature at once struggling to accept the loss of his friend and companion and fighting the great compulsion to flee. He stood, fear and confusion overwhelming him. At the edge of the flare's light, he saw a ripple of movement upon the ground and thrust the light toward it. Fleeing before him were crawling vermin, small blind maggots that carpeted the entire region of darkness just beyond the light. What the hell? he muttered. He thrust his arm forward, and the mass of creatures writhed away as if in agony at the light but he jumped back, amazed at the great magnitude of the lava. Still, Nix had been alive just seconds before he came around the sarcophagus. The ground around him rippled and heaved as the tiny creatures twisted about. Just beyond the fading light of his flare, he inched his way forward, using his light to push them away, working his way out of the horrible chamber. As he did, the rippling of the ground in the darkness slowly subsided, and when he again thrust his flare forward, he found that only a few of the vile maggots remained. They must have burrowed back into the ground, he reasoned, and quickened his step to get out and away, only hesitating for a moment to consider the loss of his canine companion. As he turned to flee, a tremor below him gave him pause. At the center of the chamber, where the large mound of earth stood, 
The soil was visibly disturbed. Tiny fragments of debris and small pebbles suddenly dancing upon its surface. A thick, sickly white fluid began bubbling up from the apex of the mound and poured over the ground. It appeared to Hamlin like a wound seeping pus. But the bubbling quickly erupted into a geyser gushing into the air. The ground beneath him lurched and rumbled loudly. The liquid surged, and Hamlin suddenly found a flood upon him as he held up his arms to ward off the raining fluid. He was horrified to discover that what appeared to be a thick white fluid was in reality a rolling mass of the maggots that had consumed his dog. He shrieked and flailed his arms as he spun and batted at the endless stream of larvae, spinning and kicking through the room. They bit into his exposed flesh as he frantically brushed them off, screaming with terror. Despite his attempts, they continued to bite him, feeding upon his flesh, burrowing beneath his skin to devour the soft muscle beneath. As he brushed at his arms, they continued to pour down, and quickly crawled beneath his clothing, eating every inch. He fell, but scrambled onto his hands and knees, attempting to escape the chamber. But when his hands dipped into the flood of hungry maggots, his flesh was dissolved as if it were acid. He pushed down on the exposed bone of his hands, trying to rise and run, but his legs failed as they, too, were devoured by the creatures, causing him to fall face down into the wriggling mass. He screamed and flailed. They erupted from beneath his skin, consuming him alive, and he fell backward upon the undulating mass of the vermin surrounding him. As his strength and will failed him, he brushed instinctively at the larvae, still trying to stop their voracious feeding. It was futile. They crawled about his exposed bones. He watched, stunned and still alive, as the insect larvae devoured his flesh. The tide of white putrid maggots slowly working its way towards his head and leaving only the exposed bones of his forearms and ribs behind. He thrashed and screamed, his raw-throated cries filling the chamber. His flare was doused by the rolling mass of insects, plunging the area into renewed darkness. The creatures flooded into his mouth and down into his lungs to steal his breath and feast on his organs. Hamlin was given only moments to consider the final brief moments of his life. The white larvae poured out and through his chest. He heaved upwards and thankfully expired. Told you it was grim. Perhaps putting the kids that close to the Ethervox wasn't a great idea in the end. Who on earth told you to be so utterly careless? They're our future, you know. It doesn't matter. You don't need your eyes anyway. You only need your ears to tune into this fine program, so what else matters? We'll see you next week on Tales of Malifaux. Stay safe out there. Bad things happen. <laughs>